welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. We already pre-chatted before this, so we can just hop right in. <laughs> Absolutely. Is it you or me? Um, I think I was, I just edited the last one, so I was first last time, so now cool. it's you. I've got it. So today I have Rudy Bledel, also known as the Railroad Killer. So this is an interesting one. Interesting name. Yeah. Um, but works for him. So Rudy Bledel was born on December 8th of 1932 to a railroad family, including one half-brother. His father, Holgar, I believe that's how it's pronounced, worked for the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad Company. Rudy took automotive shop courses at the Vocational High School. After graduating in 1951, he began to work at Rock Island as a fireman before eventually enlisting in the Army as an engineer, where he served in the Korean War. And after reading about him, I really hope Grandpa never had a run with him in the Korean War. Cause yeah. Guy, that's so. so I was just thinking that Grandpa was in the yeah. Korean War. Trains and planes were two different things. Yeah. But you never know. Yep. So later on, Rudy would go on to claim that he went, that when he went under a routine checkup in the military, that he scored an IQ of 145. I don't know why that's like something you want to post. Okay. Yeah. You're smart. Congrats. You want a good... Good job. <laughs> and while in South Korea, he hustled trains in a roundhouse, sometimes while under fire. Some of the, the verbiage, I'm like very confused. I have no idea what that meant. <laughs> Same. I just Sounds was like, okay. important. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure. He got into an accident shortly after returning home from Korea and the injuries made his posture be very specific. Despite all of that, he ended up back at Rock Island, where he steadily grew in rank. Nevertheless, in 1959, the New York Central Railroad moved its operations away from Niles, Michigan, to Elkhart, Indiana. Because of this, most of the employees would be locals, which would cause the previous employees in Michigan to either go down in rank or get laid off. Among them, of course, was Rudy. This made him so beyond furious, as this work had been apparently his entire life, that he came to the decision that he would take revenge on the union, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, who he believed sold him out. Uh-huh. Sounds like capitalism sold him out, but okay. Correct. You, you would be correct. <laughs> yes. Any, any sane person would see it like that, but... Yeah, obviously. That's not him. Right. On August 2nd or 3rd of 1963, in a Hammond, Indiana yard, he committed his first murder. Murders, should I say. After failing to get a return signal from his co-workers in a locomotive cab, 52-year-old signal, signalman Virgil Terry decided to go look into why he had it. He climbed into the engine and found 60-year-old Roy Badorf, who was an engineer, and 45-year-old fireman Paul Overstein, laying dead on the controls. Both had been shot in the back of the head, 
and several 22 caliber shell casings were found at the scene. Jeez. Yeah, brutal. Terry phoned the police, and even though they went through an investigation, no suspects were found. The only information they received was from a witness who had stated that they had heard a motorcycle leaving the crime scene. At the time of the murders, Rudy Bladell was living alone in a trailer in Blue Island, Illinois, and drove around on a motorcycle. Hmm. So you can put two and two together. Yeah. On August 6th of 1968, Rudy struck again by killing 51-year-old engineer John W. Marshall from Niles. John was standing next to his diesel locomotive at the Elkhart Rail Yard when he was hit with close 12-gauge shotgun blasts to his midsection, sides, and twice in the head. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Very brutal. Yeah. There were eyewitnesses to this murder. But they could only describe the murderer by his build and strange walk. This whole case is probably going to have you angry. I was. And I do have all capitals in here somewhere of me screaming into my um, keyboard. <laughs> so that'll be fun when I get to it. Yeah. On March 30th of 1971, there was another shooting at the Elkhart Yard. Same rail yard. You would think. And they haven't gotten protection by then because the stuff's going on. And... Right. This time, 38-year-old engineer Louis John Sane from New Buffalo, Michigan, was shot in the back twice with a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. But there was a big difference this time, and that is that Louis survived. And he survived by managing to wrestle the gun from his attacker's hand and fired back in defense. Wounding Rudy in the stomach. Oh. Both men were driven to the hospital's emergency room. So, he's caught, correct? Both men were driven to the hospital's emergency room, where Lewis recognized his attacker as one of his old workmates, Rudy Bladell. He asked him why he had done this, and Rudy replied that he wanted to get the Niles men out of Elkhart. Through death? not make sense. And on December 31st, 1971, Rudy Bledel was sentenced to one to five year imprisonment term at Indiana State Prison in Michigan City. What the fuck? For attempted murder. What? And then to and not was, look at him for the previous murders? Correct. You'd be right. And he was released. Oh he was released after serving 18 months. <laughs> and this is where I wrote in all capitals, are you joking me? Mm-hmm. So I was screaming. Yeah, <laughs> and of course, also in capitals, the killing spree kicked back up as soon as he was released. And on April 5th of 1976, another victim was killed in the same Elkhart yard. Same yard. So you would think it's got to be him, right? Yeah. That would seem obvious. 51-year-old engineer James M. Tiny McCrory from Niles. He had been shot in the head with a deer slug from a 20-gauge shotgun while sitting in his locomotive cab, which was parked near the diesel house. And then nothing. If that happened these days... Those families would sue so fast. 
so just for bad. not having protection for them when things had already happened and people had died. And maybe you should look at somebody who had previously done this, but we're just going to forget that he had anything. Apparently. So almost two years after this murder, because nothing was done, Rudy Bladell was arrested by ATF authorities on January 6th of 1978 after local police notified them that he had bought a 357 Magnum from South Bend. See, Rudy was a convicted felon due to that attempted murder, which was only one to five years. Yeah. 18 months, you know, give or take. And because of this, he was not allowed to carry firearms. So in return, he received another one to five year imprisonment term, this time in a federal pen in Sandstone, Minnesota. Then they did the unthinkable, and he was released on November 16th of that same year. Same year. All right, I'm going to blame Indiana for this and the 70s because. I and that was even a federal pen in Minnesota. Oh. So now I'm mad at Minnesota, yeah. too. And then the federal prison system in the 70s. I, I can't do anything but shake my head right now and just say what the fuck over and over again. Wow. <laughs> right. So, of course, he was released on November 16th of 1978. So the day before New Year's Eve in 1978... So a little over a month later, Rudy booked into a local hotel in Jackson, Michigan with him in a suitcase. He carried parts of a 12-gauge shotgun purchased from an Elkhart gun shop around two years prior. The following day, he left the hotel and went down to the depot carrying the suitcase with him. When he got to the platform, he put his suitcase down put the gun together, and walked towards the locker room. He then shot 42-year-old flagman Robert Lee Blake from Southgate on the spot before also shooting 50-year-old conductor William Gulak in Lincoln Park, who was sitting at the table. Rudy then put another bullet into each of them and then headed for the door. As he was going out, he saw 32-year-old fireman Charles Lee Burton from Jackson peeking to the room. He then murdered him as well. Oh this gosh. shot knocking Charles onto the platform behind him. I'm just going to smack my head into my microphone here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this was a big one. This one when I when I was looking at it because there's still plenty more but this one when I was looking into it um, I was looking at famous Michigan cases and this was on a list of famous Michigan cases. I hadn't even heard this one. No, I haven't either. And so after leaving, leaving, Rudy took the shotgun apart and hid it under some bushes at Cascade Falls. He then went back to Elkhart, where he was living at a mission for homelessness. The Jackson murders shocked authorities. Duh. And they quickly connected them to the previous murders of railroad workers. Congratulations. Yep, yeah. Finally did it. He made the connection. Good job. But unfortunately, at that time, Rudy was questioned. But they let him go after two days for a lack of evidence. Well, shit. In search of evidence, scuba divers were sent down into the Grand River 
and helicopters searched rooftops for the murder weapon. They even contacted psychics to no avail. Huh. 70s were weird, man. Um, Three months later, though, the shotgun parts hidden in Cascade Falls were in fact located, and ejection marks from spent shell casings proved that it had been the murder weapon. The shotgun itself had its serial number traced back to the dove who by then had been reconsidered as a suspect when they finally realized his 1971 attempted murder conviction. So, I mean... Yeah. Well, that was in another state. A little slow on the pickup. Yeah, and then they'd have to check federal. But, I mean, this was... It's not like they had internet and lots of ways to connect everything. So, they were at a bit of a disadvantage at that time. Right. Absolutely. On March 22nd of 1979, charges were finally filed against Rudy Bledel, and he was arrested at the mission that same afternoon. He initially confessed to the Jackson murders, explaining in detail what happened, but later recanted his statements, saying that he had been coerced by the police. Well, obviously. He also stated that he had gone to Jackson so he could retrieve his broken motorbike and when it came to visiting the depot, he had only gone there to wash his hands. As for the shotgun, he claimed that it was his, but he had sold it to a stranger in Elkhart several weeks before the murders. Yeah, that would be super convenient. Super convenient, right. The evidence to the opposite was finally enough, though, and Rudy Bledel was convicted for the Jackson murders, receiving a sentence of life. Finally. Good. But then we're going to get into Michigan v. Jackson. So, in 1986, the Supreme Court ruled that Rudy's case should be retried, as jurors believed that his written confession had been obtained through illegal means. Oh, boy. Even without the confession, though, thankfully the jury convicted him a second time. And he was, again, given life imprisonment. Thank God. Edward Grant, the then prosecutor, described it as the costliest case prosecuted in Jackson County. He was one of the two respondents on whose cases the Michigan v. Jackson was based on, and it was later overruled by the Supreme Court following something called Montillo v. Louisiana. I didn't look further into that. I was just like, okay, interesting. Um, and Rudy Bledel died on November 15 of 2006 from thyroid cancer at the Henry Ford Allegiant Health Hospital in Jackson. That one was quite irritating. That is <laughs> irritating. Um, I'm going to say mine's no less irritating just because of the people that are in this case. I don't know if I want to call it interesting, but getting to watch it from this point of view, it was an episode of the first 48 titled mm-hmm. Left to Burn. So it's a little bit different because you're seeing, I don't know if you've ever watched the first 48 before. All the time. I, I'm so, so weird yeah. that I can fall asleep in it. To it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so it's like, we got this call. This is what's happening. And 
so I, I watched it from, you know, the time they go to the scene to getting a conclusion on this one, which was great. Because I don't like the ones that are cold cases and they're still not sure. So, uh, like I said, first 48 episode titled Left to Burn slash Trigger Happy. Because they'll do like two two cases in one. At 1.20 a.m. on February 8th, 2010, a call came in from the west side of Detroit reporting a fire. Firefighters arrived to put out the fire and discovered an unconscious woman in the house with multiple stab wounds. She was taken to the hospital and pronounced dead. Sergeant Kenny Gardner, a 12-year homicide veteran from Detroit Homicide, was featured on the show. In it, he talked about how hopefully the house wasn't too badly burned in order to find some evidence. And once at the scene, the officers there said she had a rope on her hands when firefighters brought her out. The rope was left on the porch when they took the victim out, and her feet had also been tied up with an extension cord. 63-year-old Clarence Craig lived alone in the house after her father, who she cared for, passed away six months prior. When the crew went inside, they showed blood on the couch where she was found and on the floor. The fire started in the linen closet, but didn't reach Clarenceta. The house was a mess, like her um, dresser drawers were all pulled open, clothes were pulled out. And on the show, it looked like someone had just been digging through them looking for something. So right away, it looked like a robbery. Three hours into the case... Officer LaTanya Brooks returned from talking to neighbors about the victim. And they said whoever was in there was likely someone she knew because the security gate was always locked. And officers said there were no signs of forced entry. Based on that, they said Clarenceta likely knew her killer. Gardner went to see Clarenceta's body at the hospital and noted defensive wounds. The next day, Gardner and other officers went back to the crime scene to look around the neighborhood or the official term they used was canvas the neighborhood, which I think just kind of sounds cool, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> lead investigator Barbara Simon and Officer Anthony Wright met with Clarenceta's brother. He had looked around the house for what might be missing and said she had a lot of jewelry that was missing, as well as her computer. And he had suspicions... Um, and said Clarenceta sometimes took in people that needed a place to stay, but couldn't name anyone in particular. Of course. Yes. 13 hours in. I love when they do this, too. They give you the countdown, like, up to the 48 hours, but... Right. Investigator Charles Weaver returned with a possible lead from a neighbor. They said it may have been someone named Shelley who used to visit that may have set her up. Officers went to pick up Shelly due to outstanding warrants. However, officers were unable to find her at the address they had, and Shelly was found and brought in 10 days later for questioning. Shelly said the night of the murder, she was at a boarding house and even offered to take a lie detector test to prove she was telling the truth. And you could tell just from that interview, though, she was... Because <laughs> you'll get people that was like, no, nah, it wasn't me. She was a believable like it wasn't me I wasn't there don't try blaming me for this like she was getting mad that they were trying to say that she had done it which to be honest I'd be mad too I'd be pissed (laughs) no 
And you know those interviews, they, they'll lean on people too. Like, we know you did it kind of thing. <laughs> like you do? Because I don't. It's like sleepwalking. Yeah. yeah. Like, got like, me on camera? Show me. Yeah. She was I like, get, no. <laughs> so they didn't have any result in the in the 48 hour time period. They go further in the show and it's four months after the murder when police finally get a tip with the name Darren Bass and his girlfriend Tracy White saying they had pawned Clarence at his computer. Bass was 25 and was previously arrested in 2003 for home invasion. Tracy was 20 at the time and her criminal history included misdemeanors. Tracy was picked up and brought in because of her, um, she had some outstanding warrants. In the interview, White said Darren was her ex-boyfriend and he came to her house and told her he did something to a lady and claimed Bass knew Clarencetta from the neighborhood. She said Bass told her he hit Clarencetta on the head and stabbed her and that Bass gave her a necklace, computer, and two bracelets. And this is what really pissed me off because in the interview... White said she took the money from the pond items because she needed it. And it was her birthday and she wanted to go to a club since she hadn't been to one. So it was okay he did that to her because she wanted to go to a club. Apparently. This is when I need that bombastic side eye sound. But I need Bombastic side eye. Yeah. Criminal offensive side eye. It's a literally criminal. My my favorite go to is the sound of Cardi B screaming. What was the reason? <laughs> I do yeah. that all the time, and then I'm like, insert Cardi B's voice, and, <laughs> and people will stare at me, and I'm like, sorry, I can't just insert it. I want to. Didn't she have another audio thing from a video that was Cardi B that people were saying all the time? I forget what it was now. I I'd have to remember, but. That one's my favorite. It's just her screaming and clapping. What was the reason? What was the reason? <laughs> and I'm like, that's me consistently. I'll have to look it up because I used to say it all the time. Oh, was it, was she the one that was like, that's weird? That's oh, yeah. yeah. That's weird. <laughs> that's, that's suspicious. suspicious. <laughs> I, that, I do say that, too. Yeah, that, that was the one I would say a lot when she first... Said that. Anyway, off topic here. Police then called to pick up Bass, who was on parole for an unrelated offense. Investigator Barbara Simon called Bass's parole officer and found out he was being held on a parole violation in St. Clair County. When interviewed, Bass denied knowing Clarencetta or taking anything from her house. Investigators confronted Bass with White's statement that he did it. Then he turned around and said White committed the murder. Bass said he knocked on the door and asked to use her phone, and she said yes. Once Bass and White entered, White hit Clarencetta with a pair of pliers before stabbing her and tying her up and taking her jewelry. So it seemed like in the show, Bass accidentally confessed to having gloves and throwing them away across the street, because this wasn't anything like the police knew about. He mentioned specifically taking his gloves off and throwing them out. So they're like, okay, so if you had gloves, you had an idea you were going to be doing something where you didn't want your fingerprints 
Correct. And then even worse, he then incriminates himself further by saying she knew his name. So investigators confront him with those facts and are like, okay, well, she knew who you were. You went in there with gloves. You weren't going to let her turn you in kind of a thing. And that he would have wanted to do something so she couldn't tell on him. So at that point, Bass shuts down was like, our interview's done. I'm not going to talk anymore. And he just remained silent. So after speaking with Bass, they went back to talk to Tracy White to get her side of the story. So she's interviewed a second time now. White then confessed that it was Bass's idea. And she went with him to rob Clarenceta. So they're going back and forth. Like, it was him. I wasn't there. He says it's her. She's like, no, it was his idea, but I was there. Um, So then White said, Bassett Clarenceta on the head and she fell onto the couch. Then he stabbed her, got a cord from a computer mouse and choked her. Next, White Clay and Bass set the house on fire. And in that interview, White said she knew what Bass was going to Clarenceta's house to do. So then she's saying she knew he was going to kill her in that time. So, And you went with him. And to, to make me even more infuriated, White and Bass killed Clarenceta Craig and took her items to the pawn shop and got $270 for her things. In the show, investigator Barbara Simon said, it's terrible they killed Miss Craig like that. They killed her for $270. I'm glad they're off the street and brought some justice to the family. I mean, she was right, really. $270 was worth this lady's life. It's just insane. And earlier, White had, to herself, justified it because she wanted stuff. She wanted to go out. So that was... That was the reason you're willing to kill someone. So Tracy White and Darren Bass each pled guilty because they told on themselves, basically, (laughs) to second degree murder and arson and were sentenced to 28 to 60 years on March 28th, 2011. So my sources for that first 48, um, there was an MLive article And then the Michigan Department of Corrections also had some information on their sentencing dates. I did not say that all my information was from Wikipedia. (laughs) Not gonna lie. It is the source of life sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it's like the best it has the whole timeline. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't want to spend days researching. What do you have for me, Wikipedia? Or Murderpedia? (laughs) Precisely. <laughs> so that was that. I'm frustrated now. Very. I'm about as frustrated as I was when I watched that episode in the first place. And yeah, I'm going to keep drinking my wine now. <laughs> yeah. Both of these were very frustrating cases. Yeah. It's like we're on the same mind. It's like the same wavelength <laughs> every week. I think made more frustrating by the fact that just the two people who did it, no remorse, didn't feel bad about it. Just I wanted things and I knew this lady would let us in because she's kind. It's gross. Yeah. So I'm glad her family got some answers and some justice. 
I just hope they stay in for the full time period and aren't let out early. Yeah. Because I think that the earliest release date based on the minimum would be something like 2039 or something like that, which really isn't that far away. No. It's gross. I hope they don't get parole. <laughs> Maybe we'll get lucky and they'll die first. <laughs> <laughs> This just got really dark. <laughs> I'm a bitch. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, but really, do they... Yeah. They didn't care about what they did to that woman. So... Correct. And, the, oh, I forgot completely. Part of the reason I found that episode in the first place was because she was in on the lawsuit. So Clarence Etta, Or not Clarence Etta, What was her name? Um, Tracy White. There was a lawsuit about um, removing religious headwear for mug shots and it violating religious rights. So it was her and three others, which I'll probably do their cases too, just because there's four of them. And uh, <laughs> talk about not feeling bad for people. I did not feel bad for Tracy White for... Like, oh, you want to keep your headscarf on because you're all religious now and you didn't care about Maybe you shouldn't have killed somebody. Someone. That goes against your religion. Yeah. I, I don't give a shit what you want. You're in prison for murder. <laughs> That's when I, I want to go back to, to bread and water is what you get. <laughs> I can understand if it was something small like petty theft mm -hmm. or like drugs Yeah. or... Anything other than murder, murder or rape, because, I mean, with rape, you need to know what the person fully looks like for the database, I'm sorry. Yeah. And that lawsuit, like, yeah, the lawsuit they filed was from 2021. It just ticked me off. Well, hopefully you're all not frustrated as much as we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomptech.filmmusic.io.